Welcome to the Queer Arabs Podcast. This is Alia. This is Nadia. And Ellie. And we're here with a great guest. Thanks to Tim Murphy who connected us. You can check out his episode. So can you introduce yourself? Uh, yeah, my name is David Ajmi and um, I'm a playwright and I write for TV and I'm also the author of a memoir that is my debut in long form prose called Lot 6. How long have you been playwriting? Oh, for a long time. I started sort of informally when I was in college and that was in the mid 90s. And then I went to grad school in the late 90s, but it took me a long time. I had my debut in New York in 2009. So it took forever, but everything takes forever. When you mentioned you started out informally, what did that look like? Did you ever get to revisit some of that work and like eventually show? (laughs) (laughs) No, it was basically like imitating Tony Kushner, imitating Harold Pinter, imitating Susan Laurie Parks. I just like had my idols and I was trying to figure out how they did it. And sort of, but that's, that's kind of how I learn in general. It's like by imitating and feeling the contours of how someone else does it. And then going, oh, that's what it feels like to do the thing that I love when I see it in your work. You know what I mean? Right. It makes me feel a lot better about all that fan fiction I wrote. Oh my God, it's all fan fiction. In the book, in your book, Lot 6, which we'll talk about a little later, um, you describe the profound impact that play, for example, Sweeney Todd had on the character. Do you want to talk about when you were first exposed to plays and the feelings that it gave you and like how that led you to um, do what you do now? So I was really fortunate in the sense that my family, I came very late to my family. I was kind of an accident and they had a whole other life. They, my parents were born in Brooklyn, but they moved to Tennessee and they had their whole thing. And then they came back here and I was born. And so I actually got to be exposed to stuff like New York stuff. And my mother was a huge theater fan. So my mother would take me to see plays and stuff and I don't know I just sort of fell in love with the whole thing I mean I mainly we only really saw musicals we didn't see like you know straight dramas or or serious plays but the musicals were amazing the pageantry was amazing sometimes the musicals went to very intense emotional places and Sweeney Todd was one of those and those are the ones I think that I really that affected me the most because I think I had I had a lot of emotion that was trapped inside of me with no outlet and nobody who could mirror back to me the intensity of the feelings that I was experiencing. Going to see plays like Sweeney Todd or like Dream Girls also was a huge I saw it with Jennifer Holiday and that was very intense for me. And I remember during the intermission, my mother was like, Oh my God, you're so flushed. She was always <laughs> monitoring my like physical, my physiological, whatever. So for me, it was like it was the magic of it, it was the pageantry. And then it was sort of like that twinned with the emotional rawness and intensity that I felt watching those things. And, um, and I still feel like I need both. Like I love aesthetics and I love spectacle and I also love emotional rawness. And I feel like that sort of came from my experience watching these plays when I was a kid. Yeah, I feel like being in a society where we are, we're, we're expected to repress a lot of our emotions. Yeah. Like, yeah, it has to, it has to come out somewhere and like you have to find an outlet. Um, and also it, sometimes prevents us from realizing like others have such intense emotions too so like being able to see someone um express it probably felt like really validating even if it was like in a quote-unquote fictional setting well totally it was like it was like going to see a really good therapist and the therapist you say oh i feel this way and then the therapist says it back to you in a way that is so much more articulate and to the point than what you know how to say and so for me i was a little kid 
I was sort of going, oh, the world feels a little weird to me. I Maybe something's wrong with me. I don't know. I, I feel betrayed by these things, but maybe it's me. I was just very gaslit. Yeah. You know what I mean? There was, and there was nobody. There was nobody saying, "No, it's not you." And there, or there was nobody that I, I could really say, "Hey, um, are these my are these feelings valid?" Because I was shy and I was insecure and I felt yeah. very quiet about everything. So it was like, yes, you you do feel like you see this thing mirrored back to you in a more articulate, imaginatively conceived form. It makes you feel like you belong in the world. Like, oh, well, that's in the world. And that's actually on this gigantic stage. And all these people right. are coming to see this thing and they all think it's good. And so do I. So there was something that like sewed me together with the rest of the world in this symbolic way by seeing the plays. Right. Like it's so valid that people are paying to come see this. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I was also really struck about um, the way you wrote the early chapters of the book where it was so clearly through that childlike naive lens but dealing with dealing with the complexities of the world but clearly through someone who like does not know what's up yet but is like very precocious at dealing with it like trying to figure out like what exactly are emotions, what is society what is ethnicity what is sexuality like what are any of these yeah. things um yeah through like, this clearly like precocious depressed child but also so, such a child you know yeah and I, and I was born with a very particular sensibility which is unusual i think like i was not a very moldable child like i wasn't somebody who you could just you know like like you get a puppy and then you think okay i'm gonna take my puppy to the park my puppy's yeah. gonna play my puppy's gonna eat these treats but i was a puppy who didn't go to the park I didn't like those treats. I was sort of like, the, whatever people tried to do to make me fit, it never worked. Mm -hmm. And so it did turn me into like a sort of amateur philosopher, like an armchair eight-year-old philosopher. Cause I was like, what is all this? And I was thinking about it all the time because like, I always felt like there was like a strange dense fog between me and the rest of the world. And I was like, what is that? Why do I, no one else seems to have it. Why do I have it? And so it led me down a bunch of rabbit holes and the book is kind of tracing what those rabbit holes are and, and how kind of art and becoming an artist and discovering myself as an artist yeah. sort of found, like was my way out. Yeah, that came across so clearly. Like I, I just I thought of it as like psychodrama, but not like melodrama. Not like everything's <laughs> like a hundred percent all the time, but just like the reality of I don't know. The world is a confusing place, and there's this I don't know, just a small person trying to figure it out and grow into a figure it out, right? Yeah. yeah. I think people, some people are uh, confused by it, but I've no, I look sometimes at my reviews online and some people are like, oh, he's so whiny. I don't think it's whiny, but I think people are unused to someone processing their emotional life or their psychic life when they're having a really hard time. I yeah. think in America, especially, it's very pragmatist mm -hmm. and it's like, just keep going, do your thing. And my book doesn't do that. It sort of stays in those difficult, uncomfortable, psychic moments where things are very right. tense and unresolved and painful and difficult. And it's not only a painful, I mean, it's a very funny book in a lot of ways. So it's my sensibility, you know, because it is very philosophical and it is very serious. And then it's also absurd because <laughs> because I think, because I see life as absurd. You called it a memoir. You would consider it like a straight up memoir rather than like a semi-autobiographical. It's, it's a memoir, memoir. It's sort of tricky. Like it is, it's a straight up memoir, but the form of memoir is I am learning and I have learned. And people have kept, kept ask, keep asking me this question. And I think it's really interesting because if you read Mary Carr, like Mary Carr's dialogue and her 
scenarios are so detailed, mm-hmm. <laughs> much more detailed than what I have. It's like, clearly this is an invented and clearly she doesn't remember exactly. So it's like kind of a convention of memoir since I would say like the 90s or the 80s that people add dialogue or people compress things. Mm-hmm. And my lawyer, when I finished the book, insisted that I write a foreword to this effect and and ba- and, and so showed me like six or seven other forewords that I could use as templates for how to do it for legal reasons she wanted me to do it and people are like oh well is it fiction and it's like it's all fiction because I have to construct it I have to select and curate what I'm going to use I have to add certain details into scenes if I create scenes to make them feel readable because the god is in the details so it's like I mean I talk about this a lot but I have I have one scene that I added late in the book where I'm having dinner with a friend of mine and I write about you know she does this with her hair after a certain line. And it's like, and then she does this with her fork. And it's like, did she do that? Did she say that exact word and do that exact thing with her hair at that exact moment? I don't know. I can't remember. She did things like that with her hair. Mm -hmm. And I remember she used to eat that particular Indian dish. And we did go to that Indian restaurant and we did have a conversation like that. So it's all kind of, you, you can't make it general because then it doesn't work as a book. So it's like in the end, so as I kept going with it draft after draft, I started to invent more in the spirit of what happened so that it could become readable as a book. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Because when it didn't do that, I was like, this isn't a book. Like, it's not, I can't read this. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. So it was a thing that I learned. I had no agenda. Yeah. Sort of that memory is, but like, and life is, right well too. i feel like or that like let's say like there were like 20 conversations that we had over the course of six weeks i'm not going to show you er- how incrementally over six weeks over the course of those 20 conversations i made a realization because realizations don't always happen like you know a lightning yeah, bolt yeah. to the head so i had to compress things right so that you could read i could have put the 20 conversations and tried to remember them all but like that would be so boring so and- and life doesn't lend itself well to narrative structure or snappy writing. You know? Right. Life isn't narrative. Life is like, is all over the map. Life is like a big blob and we have to, in art, shape it. So for me, I really have come to feel that like memoirs is, is fiction. It is fiction in this, in the spirit of the truth. Right. And it is the d- distillation of the mm-hmm. truth. Um, so I didn't make up facts, but sometimes I had to compress or smudge things so that they could be readable so you could understand the truth. Mm-hmm. It was yeah. never in the spirit of like like James Fry making up that stuff that he wrote in that book where he just like yeah. made up, you know, that he was a drug addict and had his whole, you know, hole in his face. I don't know, you know, like, yeah. it wasn't like that. It was all done in a very sort of, in the spirit of integrity. It's a very sort of strange line and you have to trust your own moral conscience that you're doing the right thing and that you're not sort of tricking the reader in a way that is in bad faith. Do you want to talk about what was it like researching yourself as a child at this point? Did you have to talk to a lot of, you know, people who knew you at that time? Did you rely a lot on your own memories? Yeah, I didn't research. I mean, the stuff that I had to research was stuff about my parents more than than my own stuff because i was just going off of my own subjective impressions things that i remembered so the way that i wrote it in the beginning was i just i just started writing everything that i could remember like the signal memories you know because we all have these sort of little uh, tentpole memories like that thing that happened that thing that happened and these are the things that like forge our understanding of what our childhood was and also like what life could be and so 
I wrote all that stuff down, but there were holes in it and there were things I didn't really understand. And I had to, I talked to, I talked to my older brother and I spoke with um, my aunt secretly. <laughs> That's sort of funny. Nice. We, met at a, we met at a diner on the Upper East Side. Ooh. And then I taped it. She let me tape it. She said, don't tell anyone, I'm telling you. And she told me some stuff, um, details about my mom and my mom, my mother's childhood that I didn't know because my mother didn't really talk about anything to me. And I knew she was very, you know, clandestine about what had happened to her. And so, and that was incredibly interesting and helpful yeah. to hear, to get empirical facts that correlated with my experience. Like, oh, that makes sense. That's what, this is why this happened to me. Um, yeah. So it was sort of an incredible, so it was investigative, but it wasn't investigative about me because I remember me because I was all I had <laughs> <Yeah>. back then. <laughs> so I really do, I was like clinging to my own psychic you know, consciousness, but it was more going, oh, how interesting. So I was uncovering pieces of information about what things meant, that I, things that I didn't understand. Yeah. Cool. Cause, yeah, because like doing that investigative work um, about people close to you really, like that can reveal a lot about yourself. So what was the best sort of filling in the background detail story you got out of all this? Well, honestly, I mean, my brother, there was, there's some stuff that I don't want to talk about, but there, my brother was the one who explained to me the meaning of the origin of the term lot six, because I didn't know what it was. I, I hadn't, I, I had no idea. So lot six, I knew that what, that it meant that you were, it was an epithet for being a queer person or a gay person. But I didn't know that it came from business. And I didn't know that it um, was code for a $3 bill, queer like a $3 bill. And that, and that really stuck with me when he said that. I was like, wow, everything with the Syrian Jews comes from retail and capitalism and business. It's all of the slang is organized around um, money because they're so sort of invested in that as a sort of organizing force in their lives. So that was fascinating. It's interesting because when I first heard that term and like had not heard of it before and like just heard that it was initially heard that it was like a slur for gay people, I thought it was like related to like the people of Lot or something like that. Yeah. So like totally <laughs> different, like <laughs> ended yeah. up same place, totally different um, right. wormhole that got there. <laughs> I personally, I can't think of like that many other um, like literature representations of the Syrian Jewish community off the top of my head. Did, are you aware of others or did you feel like you were kind of writing in a gap that you didn't feel representation in? Well, I know. At least in a mainstream I mean, sense, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Lucette Lignato wrote a book. Uh, she passed away recently. Uh, she was a, a reporter for the Wall Street Journal who I met when I was doing a play in Washington, D.C. And she wrote a book called The Man in the Shark Skin Suit, which I never, I haven't read it. Um, but people like it. And, you know, it's a legit, it's a real book. Um, and Isaac Mizrahi right. um, wrote his his memoir, which I actually, I really like it. It's, um, and I read it after my book, not after my book came out, but when my book was in um, the publishing you know, process. Um, and I was shocked by how he's about, you know, he's older than I am. He's maybe 15 years older than me. But um, there were so many details. So I was almost reading because he grew up, you know, like five blocks away from, from me. My sister yeah. was in West Side Story with him at the Syrian Jewish Center or something. And he played Officer Krupke and she played, I think she played Anita. Anyway, but she would always talk about that when he became kind of a big deal. But it was amazing because it was sort of like a 10, it was like a, a 10, 15 year time lapse. <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> to see what happened because we we had all the same references and he went to the same jewish school that i did and then he got he didn't get kicked out he left and his mother let him go to the high school of performing arts and i was kind of forced to stick around but um it was an incredible thing to read that and it did give me a kick you know i never thought i'm so used to feeling like a loner or a weirdo in the world that i don't even expect representation mm -hmm. and i sort of it doesn't humiliate me to not have it it like i know people want it and they crave it and i understand that and i think it's important but i also am like whatever i'll sneak <laughs> through the i'll sneak in the back you know i, I always mm -hmm. felt myself like that. i'll sneak in the back door somehow that's like my org that's my way that's the way that i orient myself towards the world in general is like okay if i don't belong here for so many reasons yeah. I don't fit in here for so, it's so overdetermined. It's not just because I'm a Syrian Sephardic Jew or I'm a gay person or whatever. I just can't get with the program. <laughs> and I've always felt that way. So I never, so I, and I always felt like I could cobble things together from like, we talked about the fan fiction thing. We, I could cobble things together from what I see in the world and find a language to communicate with people that excites me. And it doesn't have to be me you know, from my deepest inner re reaches of myself. Like I can find a way to interface with the world by using mm -hmm. stuff, by, by collaging what I see in the world that people like and understand and kind of playing with it in a way to communicate in semaphore with the world. So that was, you know, that was always my, my MO. I guess before this book, uh, did you find yourself doing projects that you felt were like personal? Well, obviously, this is such like an obviously personal project. But before that, did you consider your writing to be personal? Or did you consider it to be more about? I don't know, I guess what's not personal? Yeah, I don't know. Answer that question how you want. Well, there are people who just make these plot driven machines. Yeah, you know, for their for narrative work. And it's not personal. It's just like, oh, audiences will like this and this will be something that people will like, enjoy and it's very delightful or whatever. I'm not that person. My work is all, it's all spiritually autobiographical, every single thing I write. And if I don't feel like I'm their skin in the game or I'm not at risk in some way, or I'm not growing through the writing of something or you know, testing some part of myself, I just don't wanna do it because it's too hard. And it, I, it's too too much of an, of an investment. And I feel like, you know, I'm here for a limited amount of time. I want to make these projects count. And I want to offer something that's the truest, deepest part of me to the world. So I always do it. That said, writing this, something happened to me because it was naked and undisguised as myself. And it was my story and facts of my life and personal details that I probably wouldn't share with my friends because I'd be, feel too embarrassed to talk about it and i felt embarrassed a lot of the time writing the book but but the fact that i i but but i knew that if i didn't do that i wasn't respecting the form and i wasn't respecting my own mandate to myself like my artistic mandate which is there's got to be skin in the game tell the truth go to places that make you uncomfortable and so i had to do that but in doing that it was a tr kind of a great gift because um it was almost like i was living in like a rubber suit and then suddenly the suit came off I was always sort of embarrassed. I always felt like I was hiding. You know, I want, I like to hide. It's sort of like something I'm comfortable with. Like I'm a little mollusk, you know, and then suddenly it was like, I couldn't hide anymore. And now that the book is out in the world, I'm being asked to do interviews and podcasts and articles <laughs> and this and that. And it's like, so then it's like, you're explicating the thing 
you have to keep going over it and going over it and going over it and standing up for it and standing behind your work. And that I'm very uncomfortable. You know, it's like, I'm not, it's not my normal thing, but doing it has kind of changed me. Like, so the rubber suit has kind of come off and I feel like I like writing. I just wrote an article for the guardian the other day about masculinity and shame and it's coming out next week. And, you know, it's felt really crazy like to write it and to know that they're going to publish it in the guardian and it's really it's really personal i think it's good but it's like i'd never done i'd never done it before but that came from this editor just contacted me and asked me because of my book if i would do it and so i was like okay i'm gonna say yes to that so suddenly i'm going into this whole new thing of writing these essays and op-eds and things like that and talking about my life and my feelings and my opinions i guess from a very different vantage it's not it's not concealed in a play it's the form is dialectical so someone could go you know i hate gay people and you know someone you know and then shut up you know and then people just talk and it's like i can just sit on the sidelines and go let them have at it because when you're not out or when you're growing up and you can't reveal certain parts of yourself there's a lot of power in hiding you know it gives you protection it also gives you a certain perspective but, you know, when you're an adult and, you know, especially when you're socialized male, you're not socialized to be out and forward with your feelings and you're suddenly asked to do that. It's a, all, it's like a lot of power that way, too, but you're not used to wielding it. You don't know what to do with it. It feels like, you know, because yeah, you're like, like yeah, type of power. Yeah, this but is I not- think that that's a power too. like yeah. not knowing what I think the thing that women say how they're socialized. I understand why it's disenfranchising, but it's also a kind of power, too, because it's so truthful and beautiful to not come at things like with a fist (laughs) do you know what I mean like I often don't know what I think I'm shy I'm scared I am vulnerable I like that part of me like I like that I'm not just confident all the time and that I know what to say and that I know what to do um so I do I I don't know I feel like that's why I like women because I like that that I can have a deeper relationship with them because there are more gaps for things to go in. It's not just like this hard rock, <laughs> you know, this impenetrable surface that I'm, I'm dealing with. I'm sorry, I interrupted you. Oh, no, I was just going to say, like, not at the same, um, like, scale as writing a memoir and then doing a bunch of interviews about it. But just even doing this podcast, I feel like I've talked about like more things in my life that I have not spent as long, <laughs> like rambling at people yeah. about before, because why would I? I mean, not every point in life is my personal soapbox. Yeah. Um, and there's like, there, there is something kind of like, this is weird, but also kind of exciting. Like, what's going on here? Do I like this? Like, yeah, you know, um, <laughs> where you can kind of just sit and like, I don't know, and I feel weird about this, and I'm just gonna leave it there. Um, yeah. I don't know. I was. I've been thinking lately that I don't trust people who won't say when they don't know things. Mm-hmm. And like on the flip side of that, there's there's this like weird kind of like you said power and also ability to build trust and confidence by just being like, this is my unkept not perfectly cleaned up state of mind where I don't know things I think it's a great way to be sort of but as long as you don't let it trammel you I don't I what I used to do is I used to be so underconfident and I write a lot about this in my book I was I mean I didn't think I was deserved to talk to the telephone operator I had such bad self-esteem when I was a kid I was like oh my god I'm terrified like I just 
you know, I don't belong here. I don't, no one will talk to me. And I don't feel like that clearly anymore. Like I'm a little bit more <laughs> self-possessed, thank God, than I was when I was 12. But, um, but I'm still like, I, I think it's not a bad thing to be really porous and open and at the same time have defined boundaries and learn how to do a dance as opposed to just, you know, it's like it's one, one way or another. I, I don't think it's so, I don't think that's so great. It's interesting to think about like, um, I saw like a few videos of myself when I was five pretty recently. It was like reacquainting myself with that past self. And I realized just from that, I realized like how much I have forgotten about my own existence. Well, you're because... speaking Japanese, right? No, but it's just like even like... But even, but even that, like that's... Yeah, like, I, yeah. At the time, I, I spoke Japanese like better than English because that's we. Lived why in, did you speak? You lived in Japan. We lived in Japan, so that was one. Oh. Yeah, so there's that, and then just like seeing just the way I was doing things and acting, I was like, wow. I would, if I met myself, I would really have to like get to know myself again, and then <laughs> it made me just think about all of the ways that we kind of recover, like going through life we kind of recover from things from childhood to the point of actually getting cut off from that past self so much that you don't even recognize some of it and so to me it just struck me so much to read the book and you be able to speak from that perspective that i just think that must have been a really cool process i just remember how screwed up I was. And I and I, I really did. I mean, the book does this. It charts this heuristic. It's me trying again and again to figure out how to be what I thought would be like a legitimate human being. Because I didn't feel like I was one. I felt like I was sort of like fallen off the world or something. And that that's where I was born in this like fallen off dead zone of life. And I just kept thinking, I have to get back to, to the world somehow. What is it? Where is it? And so because I remember very being very strategic about what that meant, I do remember all of the awkward, weird phases because it was all so strategic in my head. I'm like, I have to try this and I have to try that. And I kept failing and failing and failing and failing in different ways and humiliating myself in different <laughs> ways. I think at the time I was like, couldn't deal with like the emotions that it brought up. So I, I processed the emotions sometimes for the first time in writing the book, but it was all very clear in my mind. I mean, the stuff that matters in this book, like some of the details are so precise because I remember them. Like my mother, when I came home that one day after I got in trouble at school and she was sitting in the living room with her cigarette. And I remember it so vividly. All of, there is some stuff that some scenographic things that just it's just emblazoned in my retina. I just, there's no way I could ever, ever forget it. I feel very, in some ways, I feel connected to that little boy. Yeah. I still have the same eccentricities. I still have the same emotional depth, but it wasn't filled in with enough life experience. He, like he didn't know what was going on really. It was all just kind of very messy and raw. So it's weird. Like he just didn't understand how to process his feelings and make meaning out of them in a way that could help him. So I don't feel disconnected from him, but I feel like sometimes he embarrasses me. Like he embarrassed me when I was writing it. I was like, Oof, why do you have to be like that? Or like, or like sometimes my self-esteem when I was little was so bad that it like, it was cringeworthy. So it was hard to revisit those moments. It was a really, I don't know. It was a fascinating experience. I think everyone should try to write a memoir at some point 
just because it's it's fascinating. I'll probably never do it again. Yeah. I don't think I could deal with it. I mean, it took me too long and it was really, really emotionally draining, but it was definitely like a life changing, yeah. like a game changer. Yeah. yeah, I'm trying to think like, could I? What, am I cut out for that? I'm not sure. Well, you're, but you seem young. I mean, give it a minute. Yeah. Like, give it, like, give it a second. But like, it's just a very interesting. And also because I didn't even think that I had a story to the book. Like, the book is a very strange book. It's really a book about consciousness. And it's a book about identity in a very oblique way. And I, I realized like that had to be the book. I, I was trying to hang it on a more conventional plot line. And it kind of is, it's like, oh, it's about becoming an artist in a way. But it really is so much about becoming a self and identity. And I was like, can I write a book about this? And I was like, yeah. I guess I did, because that's you what did. it is. I don't, yeah. that's kind of what this ends up, you know, I didn't start with an outline or a subject. I just was like, let me see what happens. But that's what happened. So I feel like that, that was even interesting to me. The fact that, oh, that's what this book ended up being about is fascinating to me the process just sounds really everybody profound. go try writing a memoir now let us know <laughs> yeah um let us know in the dms how it goes yeah. <laughs> um do you have any upcoming writing projects that you want to share well i have i mean i have plays that are in the hopper that are ready to go but there's no theater right now because of covid i have a play that i wrote with will butler from the band arcade fire he did the music and it's um it's a 4x play about a band recording an album in 1976 in California, and it's called Stereophonic, and I think it's really good. That that was supposed to open on Broadway in March, but um, oh that was going to be my Broadway debut. So that, you know, that um, we might we might turn it into a, a limited series. I think we're trying to figure out what we're going to do because we're stuck. But that was supposed to happen. I have another uh, play that's being excerpted in the Paris Review in December called The Stumble. And I'm working on a novel and I have a bunch of other plays. I'm just trying to, it's really hard right now to do anything, but right now all I've been doing is just doing interviews for five months. <laughs> I've just been doing interviews. Yeah, another one. <laughs> Some people have been saying like their creative process has been going like so great lately because they have nothing else to do. Obviously you can't produce plays, but some people have been having like great writing practices right now. I'm in the category of people who've been having like terrible creative processes right now, because mm -hmm. how the fuck could you? But but I don't know, um, what, what's it been like for you lately? It was good for the first like three months of the pandemic. Um, I like put on blinders. I joined that group that Yoon Lee started on uh, on public space where everyone was reading War and Peace. And I thought, oh, this will be so great. I'll read War and Peace. I'll be done and then the pandemic will be over and I'll have finished this like zillion page epic novel. And then I got to the end of War and Peace and I realized like, oh my God, this is not gonna go away. And I started to freak out. And, and so I was, I was reading War and Peace and I started this novel and I was just writing all the time. And I was trying to be, I was like, this is great. I'm just gonna use this to be really productive and I'm gonna use this as like a springboard to be so great and productive. And I was, but I was super, I was underneath, it was hysteria underneath it. That was what was fueling all of my activity. And I was definitely scared. And then, you know, between everything going on in, with the pandemic and politics and the world, like, I'm just freaking out. I mean, <laughs> I have to, yeah. it's, it's really, it would be a disservice to anyone hearing this to, for me to say, I'm doing great. Like, 
Yeah, who's yeah, doing great? I, who's doing great? Right. Everybody I know is just like, you know, either on Ativan or just like crawling up the stairs of their apartments to try to go to the bathroom. I mean, it's like, it's right. just. I wonder when we're going to stop saying to everyone, like, hope you're doing well. Because we know <laughs> yeah, no like, what kind of. Well, people don't say it. Now they say, I know it's absurd for me to say, hope you're doing okay. How you're doing. Yeah. Like, that's how most people start their emails to me now. That started maybe a couple months ago. So people are not pretending so much anymore. And I teach sometimes and, you know, I've been teaching this master class and I taught a class recently at Rutgers and I just said to my students, like, how are you doing? Cause I'm really doing poorly. Like, are you okay? And everyone said, finally, no. And I thought that was good because I, if you're in denial or if you're trying to put on a performance, like you're not going to be able to get any, any, you're not gonna be able to say anything real in your writing. I think especially for young writers, like it's just very important to to put your feeling, your immediate visceral experience of the world into your writing and start from that place, especially when you're starting to feel blocked because, um, because especially in times like this, you know, we don't want to go to those places, but I think in our unconscious, in the unconscious, we do have to go to those places because there's stuff we need to be working out. And, um, you just have to acknowledge the emotion. And right. I think sometimes the emotions can get so painful, so difficult that we want to run from the emotion. And that's when we get blocked. And so I'm saying this as much to myself as mm -hmm. to anybody, because I want to run from my emotions right now. Yeah. A lot. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I, I think at some point I realized like the difference between people who are like producing a lot and people who cannot produce. It's not that like some people are doing great and some people are doing poorly. It's that some people's coping mechanism for some period of time involves like producing a bunch of work and like that's that's a very rewarded coping mechanism right like let's not act mm -hmm. like they're all the same in the world but um it, it definitely does not mean that people are doing okay no and people can crash I mean or people like some people are very productive and then you look at what they're doing and it's like that Russell Crowe movie what is it a beautiful mind where it's like, oh my God, this literally makes no sense at all. Like you've gone off the deep end, <laughs> but they're trying to say, I mean, okay, if that's what keeps you going, keep doing it, but it's it's not that great. Right. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, so how can people follow you, like follow you on social media or- I'm on Twitter. I think I'm D-Adjme on Twitter. And then I'm on Instagram as, I think either maybe David Adjme or D-Adjme. Which and I'm on Facebook. We'll include in the description. Yeah. Oh, okay, good. Yeah. I'm on Facebook. I don't know. I pretty much add people everywhere. I, I don't, I'm so bad at social yeah. media. <laughs> yeah. You're going to add, I'm, just, I'm very bad on these social media things. And I only did Instagram because my publishers kind of told me I had to do it. But I actually kind of like Instagram the best. Me too. I, I like it too. Yeah. Yeah. I like the pictures and I like, I like how it's, it's almost like hieroglyphics. People like there's are something nicer like on Instagram. It's not like much. like it's not like the Twitter aggression. Yeah, I don't use it for any. But I, sometimes people get very politically agitated on Instagram, and they write, you know, in their photos they put things that you have. I don't like it when people yell at me. So I, I mean, I understand it because everyone's yelling right now. But mainly, it's just people with you know, photos of their, you know, their gardens and little cakes they made. 
I want to read it. Or like a quote from a book they liked and they take a picture of it. I think that that's kind of nice. It's sort of like, this is what I'm, lo- this is what I'm looking at world. Like these are the kinds of things that I'm seeing in my life. Yeah. And that feels very lovely, and very private. I like it. Right. To see what others are seeing. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you again. This was great. This was a great combo. Um, and you all can follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at The Queer Arabs. And our website is thequeerarabs.com. Um, and thank you again, David. This yeah, was so, so good to meet. Um, and thanks Same. again, Tim, for connecting us. <laughs> thank you, Tim. And thank you both. Oh, all. Sorry. And uh, I had a great time.